I'm Jamie Floyd, host of All Things Considered at WNYC. You're listening to Politics Brief, a collection of our very best coverage of the 2018 midterm elections. We'll share the sharpest and most timely talk, analysis, and original reporting from shows like The Takeaway, The Brian Lehrer Show, On the Media, and Radio Lab Presents More Perfect. And from the WNYC Newsroom, which is watching key races in New York and New Jersey. Enjoy. It's the Brian Lair Show on WNYC. Filling in for Brian today, I'm Christina Greer, political science professor at Fordham University and co-host of the new podcast FAQ NYC. With me today, I have Alexis Grinnell, political consultant and strategist, co-founder at Pythia Public Affairs and writer for the New York Daily News. Alexis, welcome back to WNYC. Thanks, Chrissy. I'm, I'm so, so thrilled to be here. I'm so glad you're here. Let's jump right in. So as we observe the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and the subsequent national conversations about sexual harassment and sexual abuse at the federal level, you've been quite vocal about the need for New Yorkers and more specifically Governor Andrew Cuomo to do more to address the what some may argue is rampant sexual misconduct by powerful men in Albany. So essentially, Andrew Cuomo is tweeting every day about Kavanaugh and women's voices mattering, but then ignoring the sexual harassment working group wanting public hearings. So first things first, can you tell us a bit more about the sexual harassment working group and how it came about? Sure. So the sexual harassment working group is a group of seven women I'm very proud to know because I've written about them all sort of respectively over the years. They are seven women who were either themselves harassed or reported harassment while working in the New York State Legislature, some in the Assembly, some in the Senate. They came together around, I think, February or March of this year after Erica Vladimir reported that she had been forcibly kissed by her then boss, Senator Jeff Klein, two years earlier. So when Erica came forward, it started off a sort of Me Too round of discussion in Albany itself. And the legislature actually quickly kicked into high gear to say, we have to do something about this. We have to address this. We have to pass legislation. What didn't happen, however, was that in this sort of rush to declare mission accomplished in the New York state budget, which of course is uh, due in April, the legislature skipped over the part where they actually listened to women and experts, people who've experienced directly sexual harassment and therefore have something very relevant to contribute to the discussion, and passed a set of bills that the governor then described as the strongest in the nation, which the National Employment Lawyers Association in New York begs to differ on. So it's a little bit of political showmanship in substitution for any real policy substance. And the working group itself, again, these seven women who have come together, produced a white paper in their free time, unpaid, well-researched. They're all lawyers and policymakers, many of whom still work in government, and produced actually an incredible document. I encourage anyone to check it out. It's on a website they set up called Harassment Free Albany. That's harassmentfreealbany.com. You can see it there. It's extensive. It's 18 pages of really well-informed, insightful uh, recommendations for legislation that will have a real impact on uh, women at work in New York State. What the legislature passed was something far weaker and without input from anyone. So what they've been calling for ever since, really, is what they call Me Too public hearings in Albany, which is particularly relevant now as we see the governor basically every day tweeting about the importance of listening to women, elevating women's voices, supporting Christine Blasey Ford. We see Kathy Hochul, the lieutenant governor, echoing that. We hear Andrew Stewart-Cousins in the Senate, you know, echoing that sentiment 
side as well, except none of them are advocating to actually hear from the women in their own backyard about how they can improve New York state law. So we actually have a member of the working group on the line, uh, Erica, as you mentioned. So Erica Vladimir is joining us this morning. Welcome, Erica. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us about how and why you got involved with the working group and why it was so necessary to do so? Sure. Um, You know, as I said when I first came out um, about my story of sexual harassment, I wasn't coming out just to tell a story. It, it was to show that sexual harassment is rampant, um, not just in the New York State Legislature, but also all across New York. And I wanted to use my story as a, a vehicle to help create change. Um, and I was so fortunate to be able to meet these other women who, you know, unfortunately had their own experiences of sexual harassment and assault and abuse, but also felt that this was the time for us to get together and and use our experiences for good, to put, you know, work with elected officials in making sure that we can protect um, you know, workers from future sexual harassment. And, you know, we, we know that we're never going to be able to eradicate it completely. And so part of the work that we're trying to do is to enforce and create laws that are going to protect and help victims when they come forward. Hmm. And so, Alexis, before I get your response, I just want to throw this out to our listeners. If you have any questions for Alexis Grinnell uh, or Erica Vladimir, please call us. Uh, Alexis has been a leader in discussions pertaining to gender equity, the culture of sexual harassment in Albany, as well as gender politics in New York City and New York State. Call us now at 212-433-WNYC. That's 212-433-9692. We want to hear from you all. How much do these issues of sexual harassment and sexual assault factor into your voting decisions? Do you want the governor focusing more on policy or cleaning out the crooks and harassers in Albany? Or would you prefer Governor Cuomo focus more on Albany's issues? Or are you glad he's decided to take on Donald Trump? Call us at 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. So, Alexis, what are some of your thoughts on uh, what Eric has stated? Well, I think Erica's making a really key point here, which is that the point of the working group is actually to do the real policy work that the legislature seems to have a sh- have rejected as their own responsibility. Again, in their own free time, unpaid, seven women came together to produce a document that is extensive, well-researched, thoughtful, brilliant, and actually really worth reading if you want to understand from the experience point of view of people who've actually gone through the process of reporting workplace harassment, what it is that they think needs to change to make better laws. That seems highly relevant. In fact, our government thinks that's relevant most of the time. The state announced that we're going to have four hearings on marijuana legalization. We've had public hearings on things like raising the subminimum wage for tipped workers. It's a normal expectation in a democratic society that we have public hearings to inform the best legislation, except it seems when it comes to sexual harassment. So I don't really see the difference material between having public hearings around marijuana legalization and public hearings around sexual harassment. I see a political difference, Mm -hmm. which is what we see often, frankly, in the performance of allyship, which we get a lot of from this governor in particular. Again, I mean, the the tweets about supporting Christine Blasey Ford, elevating the voices of women, uh, listening to women. But what about Erica, who has been speaking out, putting herself on the line at risk for... No, with no expectation of personal gain or reward since January. And in that time, she has seen, she has not only been ignored, but she's seen the man who she says harassed her, forcibly kissing her while he was her employer, elevated to a position of deputy conference leader when it was time for the governor to kind of 
merge the IDC back into the Democratic mm-hmm. conference. There was no problem then, it seems, with um, listening and elevating him further at Erica's, to the exclusion of Erica's voice. So I think, I just have to say, um, I think it's incredible that the working group continues to work and continues to be here and w- refuses to be ignored. So in this this performance of allyship, as you say, can you walk us through some of your specific critiques of the governor when it comes to his handling of sexual harassment and sexual assault in Albany? Well, I think it's more of a broader critique of the way in which uh, women are convenient set pieces in a performance of concern. So um, it's one thing to tweet about Christine Plazy Ford. It's another thing to um, actually hold hearings in your own state to elevate the voices of women who've been harassed in the legislature, like Erica. Or it's one thing to start a party called the Women's Equality Party, nominally designed to elevate women and uh, pass the Reproductive Health Act, and that was four years ago, of course, and then not actually pass the Reproductive Health Act. It seems politically convenient to elevate women, and certainly this year, which has been called the Year of the Woman, it's very politically convenient to... um, stand next to women and appear to be very, um, very sort of a feminist poster child. But I'm more interested, frankly, in the product of that performance. The performance is fine as long as there's an actual end result. And in you know Erica's case, I and the case of the working group, they are asking for something extremely basic. We have, we're going to have four hearings in the state about the legalization of marijuana, but the governor and the legislature has not committed to actually a single hearing on sexual harassment in New York State. That's outrageous. Right. Um, so, listeners, we're sp- I'm speaking to Alexis Grinnell. Please give us a call if you want to talk about Albany and uh, Governor Cuomo and the culture of sexual harassment. It's 212-433-WNYC. That's 212-433-9692. So, Alexis, in the past, you've uh, written about and talked about uh, the State Department of Labor putting out what you argued were weak recommendations. Um, And so can you walk us through some of those specific recommendations? Sure. I'm actually going to bring Erica into this, too, because it was actually, I've written about the legislature. The state DOL released recommendations on Monday, so I've not yet had a chance to write about them. But I've certainly reviewed and looked at them, and Erica has as well. And so I think the war, I want to defer to Erica and let her talk a little bit more about the working group's critique of the uh, legislation that passed and of the recommendations. So Erica, please. Sure. Um, so I think the, the biggest critique that the working group has had uh, reflects the critique that we had on the legislation that passed. Um, the legislation itself required the Department of Labor to put together model policies and model training and a model complaint form for employers of New York to either adopt or create their own off of this model um, in order to protect their employees. This was released as draft guidance, and the public was only given 20 days to submit public comments. It was done at the end of August, you know, when a lot of people, especially experts and advocates and, um, you know, uh, just regular people are spending time with their family before the school year starts. Um, It conflicted with the Jewish holidays, and it also, you know, conflicted right when everyone's really, you know, going hard for the primary election. 20 days was not enough. It was actually only 14 business days that people had to be able to look at these extensive, really detailed documents that employers, both big and small business employers, were going to have to adopt. So, you know, the working group, along with, I think we heard about 300 other public comments were submitted. Um, And then just on Monday, um, the final documents were released. 
And unfortunately, you know, the Sexual Harassment Working Group and also, you know, we heard from the National Employment Lawyers Association are really disappointed with, with what was published. Um, you know, we didn't, we weren't able to see the other public comments that were submitted. Um, and more so, there was no victim input. And that's what we saw on the legislative level when the laws were, you know, drafted and negotiated and then passed in April. And the same thing happened here with the, with the guidance documents. Uh, there really was no victim input. We don't know what experts were brought in. We don't know what advocates were brought in. But from a victim perspective, you know, we're looking at these documents and we feel that they're not the strongest. They are not, you know, the strongest in the nation. So what do you think the State Department of Labor should recommend to move beyond the stalemate we're currently witnessing? Um, I think, you know, so to, to point to certain specific things, um, first and foremost, they, these documents should be re- required to be given to every uh, employee in their primary language. Um, that is not required. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of detailed, intricate information when it comes to reporting outside, you know, in, in the court system that isn't put into these documents. It's very, very overwhelming as a victim to have to go through any process when you decide to report your sexual harassment. And these documents don't lay that out effectively for victims. Um, But I think what the Department of Labor and what the legislature really needs to do is take a step back, take a breath, and listen. Listen to victims. Listen to those who have been through the process and may not have the expertise and knowledge of how to change the laws or the policies or the guidance, but can at least relay their stories. So this way, the elected officials, the, you know, the employees of agencies who have that knowledge and capability to craft legislation and policy can take the stories that they hear from victims and turn them into meaningful legislation and guidance. So... Alexis, Erica wants, you know, this translation from, you know, the stories to actual legislation. Um, With this incoming cohort of younger legislators and female legislators arriving in Albany, what are you looking forward to seeing from this new group? And are there any particular individuals or campaign promises or specific policy positions that have you excited about the newly elected? Well, I think it is very exciting, for instance, that... um, uh, uh, the uh, Jeff Klein, who Erica says forcibly kissed her, lost his seat to a young woman. Uh, that is exciting. Full disclosure, uh, Jeff Klein was my first boss in politics. Um, and what I hope we see from these young, bright, and the women in particular who've talked a lot about sexual harassment on the campaign trail is a very um, strong voice of support for the working group and a demand for public hearings as well. I think that's a very basic ask. And it should be very easy. I actually think it should be very easy for the governor to get behind that as well. There's, you know, Rebecca Tracer was on the show a couple days ago talking about her new book, Good and Mad, and the way in which women's anger has been stifled historically, in part because it's actually a catalyst for political action and change. So um, in silencing the working group, we're stifling progress in our own state, essentially, and really reproducing the kind of silencing of women that historically has kept us back as second-class citizens, frankly. And the whole Me Too movement has centered women's voices for the first time in this really dramatic, important way so that Every day we see, you know, a new person coming forward for no reason other than their own desire to improve the country and get us past this terrible sort of uh, hellscape of patriarchy we're living through. Tell her own story of rape, abuse, assault or, or harassment. 
And it's like this terrible bloodletting, and it should come to something. And we should be elevating those voices and accepting them. But I do think the resistance at some level is one, a desire politically to say, I solved this problem, it's over, let's move on. And also a reticence to sit with discomfort, to sit in front of women who will have to tell you what happened to them and also express their anger about the fact that they have not been heard. And one of the things, for instance, the working group has talked about and I think is so key here, and it is in their recommendations as well, again, harassmentfreealbany.com, check them out. They're 18 pages. They're fabulous. They're extensive. I read them and get ideas from them. Um, They talk about the way in which the legislature itself is exempted um, from certain sexual harassment provisions so that if you were an employee of the legislature, like all these women were at one time in the Assembly or the Senate, they have actually confronted a a mammoth problem in that the legislature doesn't consider itself responsible for them. So you're able to sue the man who partic- in particular who may have harassed you, but not the institution. Although successfully, actually, lawyers for the second set of uh, plaintiffs against former Assemblyman Lita Lopez were able to convince the judge that the New York State Assembly is in fact an employer. But that should be clarified in the law so that women at work in New York State for our government have the full protections of other women at work in New York State. But again, this is very basic. It should be easy. So what role do you see for uh, state senator and ostensibly Democratic leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins when it comes to this legislation? I hope she will be a leader on it. I hope, you know, Senator Stewart-Cousins was very firm that she was not consulted in the process of making these laws. She was actually very clear about that, even as the governor's office sort of played footsie a little bit with her and says, oh, no, 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 we consulted her. You were invited to the meeting. And she kept, you know, held firm that, no, she was never invited to any meeting. She was not part of this process. What are we talking about here? I'd love to see her take that leadership to its full and natural extent and say, you know what? We need to hear from women. We need to have these Me Too public hearings. Our work is not done. Well, if the governor is listening, uh, Sherry on Twitter writes to us, what is Cuomo afraid of? Dodging public hearings on sexual harassment in the workplace for New Yorkers? I have failed to get a response from his office after multiple calls, contact form submissions, and tweets. So hopefully if the governor or his administration folks are listening, they will recognize that some women are actually very interested in hearing from them. You're listening to the Politics Brief podcast. We'll be back after a quick break. So we've got a caller on the line. Maria, uh, you're on the air. Thank you. Hello. Um, I'm a a next New Yorker calling from Portugal, uh, but following you very closely. And it's horrible to understand that what's happening in New York is exactly what's happening with the Kavanaugh nomination. And I, I'm hoping, uh, and like, just like to ask you basically, do you think that what's going on in New York, uh, hopefully with these groups, can extend to a national level? Uh, because it's, it's quite sickening what's going on right now. Um, and, and there has to be a solution, and our work is not by any means done at all. Thank you, Maria. So can we translate the hard work, and Erica, this is, uh, feel free to chime in as well. Can we translate the hard work of Erica and and her six other cohorts to a more federal level? Erica, I'll let you respond first. Um, I I sure hope so. I I believe so. You know, there there is a, a group of congressional staffers. I believe they're, I'm not sure if they're all former staffers. Um, they're called Congress Two. Uh, they all experienced harassment or abuse and assault while they were working in Congress, 
and they, you know, are on the ground in Washington, D.C., um, really fighting for the same things we are here in, in New York. And I think that's what it's really going to take, is for victims to realize that we have this power, we do have this momentum and, and this ability to use our voices and our experiences to put our feet on the ground and to work with our elected officials. And it's very frustrating. You know, there, there is a huge political play in this, but I think the more victims you know, understand how much power we truly do have, and, and we start raising our voices, our collective voices together, um, it can be a national movement. And I do know that the sexual harassment working group is, is that's, what, that's what we're hoping to see, is that as we, you know, work towards strengthening the laws in New York State, we're able to connect with people in Washington, D.C., in other states, and put our minds together and collaborate on what's working and what's not. There are other states, it's about a dozen other states who have held public hearings. And so what we're asking for in New York is already happening across the country. And if we can continue sharing those ideas, there's no reason that we can't protect workers from harassment and assault and abuse from California to New York. It's even happened right here in New York City. We've had a public yeah. hearing about sexual harassment. It's It can happen locally. Something I want to add, though, is you asked me earlier, Chrissy, about whether or not what I wanted to see from Senator St- Stewart Cousins, but I don't want to put the onus entirely on her. Mm-hmm. I think part of what's key to the kind of um, uh, movement building that Erica's talking about and to Maria's question about how we expand this, we need to see not just performances of allyship from men. We need to see leadership from men on this. I want to see the Assembly Speaker Carl Heasty calling for Me Too public hearings. I'd love to hear from men in leadership, elected and otherwise, talking about the importance of elevating women's voices and wanting to center them. It's not enough to tweet, uh, Christine Blasey Ford is so brave, or these people are so brave, and like, I think they're great, and then not speak up when it counts in a way that actually puts skin in the game. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, Erica and her um, uh, colleagues at the Sexual Harassment Working Group have been circulating a letter in the legislature. And Erica, you may have to correct me exactly how many folks have signed on, because I I don't recall the number off the top of my head. But assembly members and senators have signed this letter calling for Me Too public hearings, but not enough of them, it seems to me. Erica, what's the number? Mm -hmm. Right, it's 22 senators and 23 assembly members, and I and I do want to say, Alexis, to and your there are point 213 of, led lawmakers in the legislature right, for everyone right, who at home right. do the math. Right. Yes, um, but you know, as you were saying about men um, stepping up into leadership in in this Me Too era, um, Assemblymember Dan Court is the one who's carrying the letter in in the assembly. Um, you know, and so, and that's the kind of leadership that that we want to see. That's the kind of leadership that that we need. We we need to go above and beyond the, you know, holding a sign that says hashtag I believe survivors. Do something. Use your position of power right. to be able to stand with victims. And you know, Assembly right. Member Dan Court has you know stepped up, and and the Sexual Harassment Working Group is is looking forward to seeing you know the the governor uh, do the same. And I think that's really important, also for presenting positive masculinities, especially in the face of the level of misogyny we see coming out of the White House. So again, not enough to show this performance of allyship or performance of of feminism. It's more important to actually do the work. Mm -hmm. Well, Alexis, while I have you here, um, before we wrap up, you know, I want to shift gears ever so slightly just because um, you've you are a student of politics in New York City and New York State especially. So I want to get your, your thoughts on this. So last night, the Working Families Party voted to endorse Cuomo for governor. 
having originally chosen to back Cynthia Nixon for the top spot. And in your estimation, what is the future of the Working Families Party? And I ask you because I'm curious as to where they go from here. You, we, we may remember they initially supported Cuomo, uh, Cuomo over his effort teach out for governor in 2014. And this year they backed Joe, Joe Crowley over Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for Congress. And so do you still see a role for the Working Families Party in this political moment? It appears as though they're trying to find themselves um, and they've they find themselves now in, in somewhat could be a, defined as a lose-lose conundrum, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I'm just, while I have you here, I just want to know, what do you think can and should be done with the Working Families Party right now? I think all Democrats need to display a lot more courage than historically or lately we've been showing. And that certainly includes important, frankly, voices on the left. And there are actually a lot of um, interesting organizations and coalitions coming up that are kind of dominating the conversation in this very principle-driven way. You know, the Democratic Socialists of America are, you know, basically claim have, have claimed responsibility for electing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a congresswoman in Queens, and that's a huge deal. And they are kind of organizing and putting together what is a young organization now, and I think trying to flex that muscle. We've got organizations like NIPAN and great community-based groups that are doing fabulous work. And, and sort of not finding themselves quite as conflicted yet. I mean, the Working Families Party at this point has been around for over 20 years. It's more mature. And they're, I think, at a little bit of a critical juncture where I know it was hard for many people yesterday on that vote. I don't think anyone um, delightfully voted to give the line to Cuomo after running such a strong um, campaign against him and by nominating Cynthia Nixon. But it is certainly awkward um, and and I think they I wonder if they're not being maybe a little bit eclipsed by some of the the new organizations coming up that aren't yet sort of confronted with the kind of m- problems to some extent of their own making that the WFP is facing. So we're going to have to leave it there. You're listening to The Brian Lair Show. I'm Christina Greer filling in for Brian Lair, and we're speaking to Alexis Grinnell, political consultant and strategist and writer for the New York Daily News. Alexis, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to wnyc.org slash election.